I am your host, the Doc Chad Matthews, lordsofpain.net. Wherever you may be listening, Doc says, Doc says... Uh. This is just what the doc ordered I'm saying welcome They sick of the other shows Chad here to help them The author of the mania errors Bringing terror on L.O.P. radio This is the prepare for the knowledge That he about to showcase Like a bar that you lift His opinions hold weight He wrote a few books And he's working on another for y'all This a five star podcast Chad let's get it on Author of the Wrestlemania era The book of sports entertainment And of the doctor's orders On lordsofpain.net Doc says. Hello and welcome to The Doc Says on LOP Radio. I am your host, The Doc Chad Matthews, author of the WrestleMania era book series and of The Doctor's Orders on LordsOfPain.net. Wherever you may be listening, thank you for making me a part of your day. There are a lot of topics that I would like to get to. Last weekend I attended the Ring of Honor and NWA co-produced Crockett Cup, live in Concord, North Carolina. Had a blast, and I want to get to that a little bit later, along with some thoughts on WWE's Money in the Bank card and a few other odds and ends that have been on my mind lately and what I will label once again the five most interesting things going on in wrestling right now. That said, before we get into those topics... I want to spend some time talking about Impact Wrestling. If you would have told me a year ago that I'd be talking about Impact Wrestling on this podcast, then I'd have called you a liar, Mean Gene. But thanks to the persistence of one Caleb Baldwin, a good friend of the program, who will have to get on the pod to talk about upcoming events for the promotion later in the year, I decided recently to binge Impact Wrestling's best from 2018 a year that many called its bounce back to respectability after arguably its worst year ever in 2017. Naturally, I went and searched for the reasons why people like Caleb were championing it last year. He sent me all sorts of different things to to consider and review, and I honestly, I just, I never got around to it. It just didn't interest interest me that much. So, you know, I've got a background with TNA. I watched it years and years ago, but, you know, for for me, there was just something about the stigma that had been created that prevented me from dedicating much time to it. But I'm glad that I did, because what I got out of my review of 2018's Impact Wrestling Best of List was, quite frankly, a lot of enjoyment and a great amount of respect for what they're trying to do, and I look forward to picking back up with what they've been doing since the end of last year here in the upcoming weeks. The first things I that I watched were the Johnny Impact versus Austin Aries world title match from Bound for Glory, which took place in October last year, and the hair versus mask match at Slammiversary between Sammy Callahan and Pentagon Jr. In one of these two matches, I was rather hoping to find the heart and soul of the company, that frankly I was still calling TNA until this random side project of rediscovering a long-lost love of what to me is truly the house that AJ Styles built. You see, I've kind of been developing a rule this year about watching non-WWE stuff. The first thing that a promotion has to do for me is offer something that I can't see if I watch WWE. 
That's the primary thing I needed to see. And so it was fitting that my first Impact Wrestling match in years was Pentagon Jr. versus Sammy Callahan. I love character-driven wrestling, like they offered that night. And I also appreciate hardcore wrestling with weapon spots and blood and guts. I can see Daredevil spots in WWE through ladder matches like Money in the Bank, which is upcoming here in a couple weeks. You know that. To me, ladder matches are for wrestling what Fast and Furious movies are to me in Hollywood. But hardcore matches are the equivalent of watching RoboCop, one of action movies where shit just gets ripped apart. I can't get that from WWE anymore. Penta and Sammy beat the crap out of each other, so not only were they characterful in ways currently unique to me in American wrestling, but they went to war and had me suspended within their story to the point where I felt like it might escalate to something uncomfortable. Not long ago, I referenced Edge versus Foley on this show and did so with reverence, but the kind of hardcore exhibited by Pentagon and Sammy Callahan was just more inherently violent and visceral. Add the wonderful character performances. Pentagon is so expressive for a guy in a mask, and Sammy's facials are absolutely fantastic. And you have a recipe for something special, and I believe that their match was special. That lived up to the hype as Impact's match of the year, as I had seen in many publications. And for that genre, I'd struggled to believe that there was something significantly better than that in recent times. I respect the hell out of the wrestlers willing to put themselves through that brand of physical agony for our entertainment. I mean, my goodness, it's, it's brutal. But it passed the unique test, most of all. Being honest, I'm unsure that I would have kept on watching past that first match had it, had it been Johnny versus Aries instead. Now, I'm a big fan of both guys, both Aries and Johnny Impact, formerly Johnny Mundo, formerly John Morrison. And I genuinely did enjoy their title match, but I was not overwhelmed by, wow, this is different, like I was with Pentagon versus Sammy Callahan. That said, I really grew to respect the role that Austin Aries played for Impact as I watched his body of work across the period between Redemption and April, when he combined with Pentagon and Phoenix in a triple threat title match that came to be, in large part, because Alberto El Patron, formerly Del Rio, blackballed himself from the business through to the title loss to Johnny Impact. Austin Aries' body of work over that stretch was very impressive. Impact Wrestling needed a Bret Hart type, some sort of a stabilizing force at the top of the show who would deliver rock-solid feuds and very good-to-great title matches consistently, and I think they found that presence in Austin Aries. Hand to heart. Aries versus a a former pro football player named Moose was one of the better pay-per-view main events I watched through the year 2018. That, to me, was another perfect example of the level that Impact reached. Respectfully to Impact, Johnny Impact, that is, against Austin Aries, Moose versus Austin Aries was just, in my opinion, it was the kind of match I'd much rather watch. Slammiversary which was the site of that main event between Moose and Aries, was a show that really and truly delivered the kind of match of the night competition that I personally crave as a wrestling fan. I don't get tired of great matches. I don't get tired of seeing various different talents on the same wrestling card try to outdo each other. I don't. To me, 
we live in a day and age where every single every single talent across the board has the ability to offer something different. And I appreciate the shows that embrace that and try to give you that. And in the midst of that, offer you the opportunity to see a great competition for the best match of the evening. Aries had to follow Pentagon versus Sammy Callahan. And also, adding to that, a whirlwind blast of a street fight tornado tag team title match between the new and old LAX factions. Aries had a guy across the ring from him with untapped potential and a pretty bland match performance record. The pressure of ending the night with a bang and trying not to be remembered as the guys that headlined over the real main event, you know, Penta versus Sammy Callahan in a Rock Hogan type role. And, and despite all that, Aries went out there and led the way to an absolutely fantastic title match. That was the only Moose match that I watched. Better to leave the memory alone for now, as that has become a pretty good memory. There was nobody better for that job than Aries. You know, carrying the company as he did last year. Aries, his early rise to stardom in, in TNA came right after I stopped consistently watching it back in the day. Basically, when it was becoming less a distinct show, trying to be different and more WWE light with lousier production. However unfair that assessment might prove to be. And I intend to go back and take a closer look to challenge my long-held assertion later this year by looking at some of the old TNA stuff, because genuinely... I'm actually, uh, this this year, looking back at 2018, really made me curious to to get an up, uh, an updated personal history with that promotion. You know, Aries has done nothing but impress me since he did commentary for and performed on 205 Live in its early brand building days. As you can see in the list to be posted on LOP regarding my favorite 10 impact matches from last year, he's heavily featured against a wide variety of opponents. Impact, simply put, would not have had the year it had last year if it were not for Austin Aries. I feel like he was a huge part of their success, as were the Lucha Brothers, Phoenix, and Pentagon. Phoenix and Pentagon offer such a complimentary addition to a wrestling show, with the former's next-level aerial offense keeping you glued to the program for the kinds of feats he can pull off in the ring, and Pentagon appealing to that more cerebral side of your wrestling brain. Certainly add Callahan into the Penta side of the spectrum, giving Impact two very engaging character actors at or near the top of the hierarchy, and then add Brian Cage to the Phoenix mix and sprinkle in some of both with Eddie Edwards, who's kind of an Owen Hart in 1996-like presence, and you have the makings of, for a promotion that can change perceptions. That doesn't even mention Johnny Impact. He's kind of a lame babyface personality, but he's always done most of his talking when the bell rang anyway via his actions. So, you know... Really, perception changing. And speaking of perception changing, I think Johnny has done wonders for his all-time reputation by excelling so much in both Lucha Underground and Impact. My thought was always that WWE missed an opportunity to make him a higher-tiered mid-card pillar, at least, and he has validated my rosy outlook on his alternate reality prospects with what I've seen from his body of work from 2014 to present day. The previous speaks well, of the Lucha Underground phenomenon, doesn't it? Talk about Johnny Impact, Phoenix, Pentagon, Cage, all huge stars in Lucha Underground, which I look forward to talking about later in the year when I start Season 2 and dedicate some airtime first to Season 1. Cage was instantly one of my favorites in LU, 
So it only aided my growing affection for 2018 and impact when he took control of the X Division. It seems strange to think of this monstrous John Cena with coordination and a bit of Batista-like intensity as an X Division wrestler, given that always meant style size guys early years ago. But the platform for Cage to just go out and try to steal the show all the time, unrestricted by the associations that people make of his ability considering his size, I thought that was really a nice touch to impact wrestling. He can do anything in the ring, and he can make it look smooth. Years ago, I created a wrestler named Genesis for a little promotion I invented and wrote about on uh, the Wrestling Matters forums. Shout out to those guys, Stinger in particular, who's running a site called The Vortex Effect. And that wrestler was as big as I could make him and as as athletic as anyone in the history of the business. Guys, that's pretty much Cage come to life. He's Genesis. Nothing is physically off limits in his matches with the likes of Matt Evanborn, Sedell, and Phoenix and Rich Schwann, they were all fe- they were all just tremendously fun to me. So overall, I think Impact just struck a good balance of styles and personalities last year. There's a lot of talent running through there right now, not even having mentioned yet the very impressive Tessa Blanchard, Taya Valkyrie, some of the smaller, faster wrestlers that tore up opening matches, like Taiji Ishimori, DJZ, and Xavier. Another special mention to LAX past and present for that Slammiversary match, I truly loved some of the garbage brawls in the old TNA, and I absolutely believe there's a place for that in any promotion. It's just a fun change of pace and so easy to get aesthetically lost in. Anyhow, there was so much to appreciate from Impact throughout last year. Slammiversary was one of the better wrestling shows top to bottom that I've seen in the last half decade. I'd watch that show again and feel great about the time spent, no lie. Not to repeat what everyone else has, but it's just so true that I think it bears reiterating. Slammiversary 2018 is the show to watch if you want to see a microcosm of why Impact has become worth your time. My hat's off, honestly. It's definitely one of the most pleasant surprises of my year thus far, the hours spent learning about the modern resurgence of Impact. They're a resilient company, and they've been around for a long time. I wish them nothing but the best, and they've earned my viewership. Count me in for the bigger shows this year at the very least. Let's talk about the Crockett Cup. Last weekend, conquered North Carolina. Had a blast, man. It was probably the second most enjoyable wrestling show that I've attended since WrestleMania 24 in Orlando, with number one being TakeOver Brooklyn 3. The old school set with the classic NWA canvas appealed to that part of me that spent dozens of hours combing through the peak of Jim Crockett promotions in preparation for writing my first book, as did the general tone of the evening. The NWA, with production assistance and a talent boost from Ring of Honor and its connections, struck a balance between celebrating the past and focusing on the present. One of the NWA's greatest resources right now as it's trying to rebuild itself as a brand, is nostalgia. So bringing back a concept not utilized since the late 80s in the Crockett Cup Tag Team Championship, or the the Crockett Cup Tag Team Tournament, which just so happened in this case to have the NWA Tag Team titles up for grabs, having legends such as the Midnight Express, Nikita Koloff, and Magnum TA make appearances, and letting the Rock and Roll Express lace up their boots on the pay-per-view, 
all made sense to draw interest. It drew my interest. It drew me to the concept. It made me want to drive an hour and a half to get there and be a part of it. But the focus was primarily on where the NWA wants to go and not where it has already been. And I think that's where WWE should take notes because WWE gets a little heavy-handed. Maybe some would say, and I think I would certainly say, very heavy-handed with its focus on the past. So truth be told, I had very little in the way of expectations for this show. So it was rather refreshing to just go to the show, largely be unaware of what was going on, and give the bookers a chance to tell me stories without any preconceived notions. I thought the tag team tournament went really well from a storytelling standpoint. What they did essentially was they set up Bandito and um, and Flip Gordon, two guys who really impressed me with their style of wrestling. I love that style of wrestling, this high-flying type stuff that we see that's permeated the main event scene virtually everywhere around the globe. To me, it's the Warriors basketball of pro wrestling with all its fluid motion, innovation, and draw-dropping jaw-dropping athleticism. They set that team up, Bandito and Flip Gordon, to be the the babyface team that would likely emerge from that side of the bracket. But then when the surprising duo of the artist formerly known as Bram and uh, his partner as my buddy Chris, who went with me, called Larry Lowboots, you know, I think their their actual names are Royce Isaacs and Thomas Latimer, but those names weren't particularly memorable. Neither was that team. But that team defeated Bandito and Flip Gordon to get to the finals of the tournament. So it set up this dichotomy where it was like in the back of your mind, you're thinking as a, a fan who's got a little bit of experience behind him, all right, the NWA wants to get their own thing going. This is the only team that is not committed somewhere else. So they're in the finals. They're going to pull out the shocking victory, going from the Battle Royal winning team to get into the tournament in the very first match of the night to actually then, at that point, winning the whole tournament. That was what was going on in the back of my mind. But you also had this great story that they set up on the other side of the bracket where the Briscoes, who were very, very impressive in their own right, They took out the sentimental favorites in Morton and Gibson, the Rock and Roll Express, in the first round. And then they got themselves DQ'd in the second round against the Villain Enterprises representatives, PCO and Brody King. Then they injure both PCO and Brody King. So the finals has got a team from Ring of Honor and Villain Enterprises that, you know, you're thinking the NWA team probably should win because the NWA will want control and there's this rumor of the the relationship between Ring of Honor and the NWA starting to become a maybe a thing of the past or such was the case from NWA World Champions interview Nick Aldis when he talked about how the time was coming for them to go their separate ways but what ended up happening is you've got this great little dichotomy between the injured babyface team that everybody in the in the building loved And then you had this upstart team of two guys that, I mean, seemingly nobody really knew about who could conceivably win because of their clear association with the NWA, or such was the way that I perceived it. So there was some drama there in the final match, even though it wasn't very long and not overly impressive in terms of in-ring performance, but it did exactly what it needed to do and created a nice story, 
So I enjoyed the hell out of it. I mean, I really thought that the tag team tournament, from a storytelling standpoint, was great. The match quality took a back seat to that overarching story for the most part. Not that PCO and Brody King's two matches before the final weren't rock solid in their own right. How about PCO, by the way? The former Quebecer and pirate in WWE, at 51 years old, is one of the most over-acts in ROH. He's working like a cyborg sort of gimmick, it would seem, and he's wrestling his butt off. Brody King was pretty impressive, too. Villain Enterprises winning, that was nice. I thought uh, that it's kind of good to see the ROH-NWA connection stay alive, because, to be frank, ROH by itself, they've got some interesting talents, like Bandito, like Flip Gordon like Villain Enterprises, but by itself, it doesn't seem like it's an overly stacked roster of talent. And the NWA, well, I mean, it's kind of up in the air exactly what the NWA even is right now, but the two of them together, it makes for a good combination and it allows nights like that to take place in which you really get a hell of a wrestling show out of it. So overall, the tournament was fun and, you know, it was a satisfying showcase for tag team wrestling. I thought that the NWA National Championship match between the Mac, who was the champion, and Colt Cabana, the challenger, was a total blast of a nine-minute match. One of the most fun, entertaining nine-minute matches I think I've ever seen. I didn't have any real concept as to what they were going to do. I had never seen Colt Cabana wrestle before in my life, and out comes Colt Cabana doing his very fun little thing that he does, and out comes Willie Mack, who I thought was awesome in Lucha Underground. So these guys have great chemistry. They look like they've worked each other like a hundred times, and they go out there and borderline steal the show. I mean, up until that point, there hadn't been one match that really looked like it clicked fully, but that one did, and I had I had a great time with it. Both me and my buddy Chris were just kind of just blown away with, with the quality of it because we didn't know what to expect, and we ended up you know, really having a blast watching it as they took us through this nine-minute journey, just move after move, and some big moves from both guys, and some creativity, a nice little creative flair from both guys. I mean, two guys of their size, particularly Willie Mack, going out there and doing his thing, being able to fly all over the ring, fly outside the ropes. He's a very athletic guy. And the finish, Colt Cabana winning that championship, I thought it was awesome. I mean, it was one of the more creative finishes that I've seen, because I just haven't seen the particular pinning combination that he's used that he used that night uh, perhaps ever before so that was awesome and then the main event was tremendous I mean that I imagine was outside of the tag team tournament that was the selling point the selling point Marty Skrull going out and challenging his old friend both guys from the UK his old friend Nick Aldis who's been positioned as the figurehead right now of what the NWA is trying to do in rebooting its its modern history. The NWA never really went anywhere, by the way, but it became a very low-level, independent-type thing. And the title that had once been around the waist of the likes of Rick Steamboat and, and Ric Flair and Dusty Rhodes and so on and so forth then becomes associated with, you know, with respectfully, by comparison... A bunch of nobodies who never really got much to to, to go on. They never really got their, their, their careers going. So Nick Aldis, who is a former Impact champion, goes out 
and gets that championship and is very and basically has carried it for the last year. He had that very high-profile series of matches with Cody Rhodes last year, where he lost the title to Rhodes and then gained it back at the NWA 70th anniversary show. A great match, by the way. Much, much better than the one that they had at All In last uh, last fall. So Nick Aldis against Marty Scurll, I thought I, that was the one thing I'd say I had high expectations for. Nick Aldis is kind of a straight man. You know, he kind of does this. There, there's not not a whole lot of nonsense going on. He's not overly charismatic, but he's good. You know, he's a good wrestler, and he's got presence. He's got a good look to him. He looks like a champion, and I think they've presented him well enough in some of the NWA 10 Pounds of Gold segments. Nothing he says really blows you away. Most of the intrigue in the matches he's been involved in dating back to the Cody match particularly, and then this one with Marty Skrull, was the intrigue was based on his opponent. And I really, I thought they did a great, great job of making you guess as to who would come away the victor, because I could certainly see NWA hitching its wagon to what AEW is about to do, Marty Skrull joining his buddies from the Elite in that promotion, and really severing ties from ROH, bringing the NWA title into the fold in AEW, and, and that being the direction they took. They did not go that route. Aldis did retain, but what a match. Aldis had a wicked blade job. I'm assuming he bladed because I didn't see where he, he necessarily would have gotten busted open the hard way. But Marty Skrull, Nick Aldis, they worked their tails off. Seeing the mat with the NWA logo stained in red from blood is a, is a memory that I have from, from many, many years ago. Some of my earliest wrestling memories are from the NWA so to see that match and to see them have a classic, and it was an outright classic. They stole, they didn't steal the show, they were the show, but if you could say that the Crockett Cup was the main draw and that the NWA title match was secondary to it, which, uh, you know, that's kind of a tough sell to me given the amount of hype behind the Skrull versus Aldis match, then, you know, really they were the exact show that they that they intended to be. They did everything that they were supposed to do to maximize the performance on the night of in a roughly 25-minute match. I think they deserve a lot of credit. I think Aldis deserves a lot of credit. I think that Skrull deserves a ton of credit. And it felt like a big deal. And that, I think, is one of the things the NWA needed more than anything coming out of that show, is they needed to to put on display that they are trying hard to establish their, their foothold in a very crowded but very popular independent wrestling scene right now. There's a lot of good things going on in wrestling. I would count the NWA among them based on what I saw at the Crockett Cup. That presentation, the way that it was produced and booked, everything really clicked for me on a level that was designed to be a great wrestling show. You know, the best match was great. The second best match was very, very good. The tag team tournament told an excellent story across the runtime, across its its matches involving all eight teams. I was just impressed. All overall, that again, one of the more fun wrestling shows I've been to in a while. And, and I hope that they continue to build on the momentum that I hope that they gained from that show. I hope that they do some good pay-per-view numbers. The building wasn't overly full. It wasn't in a huge building. It was more like a civic center type place. The the floor seats were all um, you know, all filled. The the first 
level, the area that I was in, a little bit above that was was very well attended. The third level was virtually no attendance whatsoever. So, I mean, they did not sell out the building. But I think that they did an absolutely fantastic job. The only reason I bring up the attendance factor is because I think that shows you where they stand. You know, they came into an NWA hotbed. And I think that hopefully maybe a year from now they go back and they do it again and they they sell out the building. I think that's a legitimate goal for them to set. So I'm rather hoping that the Ring of Honor connection continues or that perhaps the NWA does tie in a bit with AEW. I think that there's some good things to be gained by these connections. The NWA is doing some things really, really well. Jim Cornette on commentary is a good thing. I loved the accessibility of the show. I mean, I walked right up, and I'm literally 10 feet away from Jim Cornette while he's doing commentary. So it was very intimate, the setting. It wasn't like a WWE show where you go in and you, you don't see anybody doing anything because everybody's, you know, all closed off. Everything's backstage. I actually sat there and was just sitting with my friend. I look over, and there's Camille, the Nick Aldis's valet. She's standing over there talking to a friend of hers. I'm literally like five feet away from her. And she is, by the way, absolutely gorgeous in person. So um, all in all, a hell of an experience, man. I had a blast with it. And I hope you guys will give it a chance after listening to my glowing opinion of what I saw. I hope you'll go and give that show a watch if you didn't watch it. And I hope you'll give the NWA a chance. And this is just this show's been really about encouraging you to branch out and see what else is out there because... Great wrestling is great wrestling. You know, production value and all that stuff, that is secondary to what happens in that ring sometimes. And I think WWE spoils us with its production value. But in no way, shape, or form is great wrestling not just simply great wrestling. And and NWA gave me a great wrestling show that I will remember for a long time, and I thank them for that. AJ Styles challenging Seth Rollins for the Universal Championship is fascinating to me. My initial reaction was a whoa, because that blindsided me to a degree. I remember about a week prior to the Raw that made it official, I had thought to myself, I wonder if they'd go right to that, but then quickly passed it off as a byproduct of exhaustion still lingering from WrestleMania weekend. When I read Styles vs. Rollins at Money in the Bank, a couple of thoughts ran through my mind. And only later did I start thinking about why they were doing it in May instead of waiting until next April, or at least this August. The first thought was that WWE really wants to build the Universal title up. Let's face it, Brock Lesnar to the diehard fan base practically killed that championship before it ever got the chance to establish its reputation in a positive way. Kevin Owens did the best he could with it, but he was rushed to that spot and instead of playing the bully heel that he performed so capably when he debuted, he wound up in a buddy comedy for five months. To his credit, he had some great matches with Rollins and Reigns that watched back very well, but Goldberg manhandling him ended his run on a bad note, then Brock took over, and the rest is history. Literally, the only history that the title has since Mania 33 is Lesnar having a great five-minute match, which is almost a backhanded compliment, isn't it? I mean, sure, it was a great five-minute match with Goldberg at WrestleMania, but if you do nothing but finishing moves for five minutes, is that really something to be historically proud of? Maybe that's pushing the negativity too far, but will people honestly remember 
Goldberg Lesnar, the brief Joe push, the four-way that built up Braun Strowman to the brink of becoming the face of the company, and a solid yet fairly monotonous beast mode pile of formulaic title bouts against smaller wrestlers? Or are they going to remember Lesnar rising to his most detestable, with the WWE using the part-timer problem as an excuse to downplay KO's potential top-level stardom and essentially push Chris Jericho out of WWE to New Japan and then AEW? Or remember how Lesnar then no-showed the Joe match and double-murdered Strowman's career, then became one half of a candidate for worst feud in the history of the WWE main event opposite Roman Reigns, seemed like he'd finally moved on from the company, only to show up and take a giant dump on any hope that fans had of WWE moving on from him during his final, his, uh, his final title reign to date. Ladies and gentlemen, AJ Styles versus Seth Rollins has come to rescue us from the fiery depths of Universal Championship Beast Incarnate Ruled Hell. We need this, and we need this right the blank now. The Universal title needs this right the blank now. If WWE main roster match of the year is not going to be a runaway train, carding Kofi versus Daniel Bryan at Mania 35 smoothly down the tracks toward December, then I think Rollins versus Styles is going to be the match that makes it a race. If not at Money in the Bank, then surely in a rematch at a later date. What I personally wouldn't give for Randy Orton versus Christian-like series between the two, culminating in the main event of SummerSlam, but that's for a later discussion. Right now, the two best wrestlers in WWE today, owners of the most classic main roster match resumes across the past half decade, are about to do battle for the big red belt, and we are all going to benefit from it. The next thing I thought about was how much this confirms for me that WWE thinks of Money in the Bank as one consistent pairing with NXT TakeOver away from being this generation's definitive King of the Ring-esque big fifth pay-per-view. The history is stacking up nicely for the event, which is actually nearing a full decade of existence. Punk vs. Cena, Rollins vs. Ambrose, Rollins vs. Reigns, Styles vs. Cena, Rousey's first singles match and the associated cash-in, now Rollins vs. Styles. That's five pretty huge matches complementing the Money in the Bank ladder matches. We're only a few years removed from Styles vs. Cena starting at Money in the Bank, then going on to show-stealing efforts at SummerSlam and Royal Rumble 2. Could we see a repeat with Styles vs. Rollins? So, I think it's huge, and I'm excited to talk more about it in the coming weeks and hopefully months, because it's my choice for top possible feud in WWE today. It should get no better than this. A couple of other quick hitters, and then I'm signing off and promise to expand in the coming weeks. And don't miss next week's show featuring LOP's top columnist, Sir Sam, in the Sunday Wrestling Conversation. Those quick-hitting thoughts. KO turning heel on the new day was surprising, but not surprising. I do believe that his potential as an everyman babyface is much higher than most believe, but I like him versus Kofi very much. It works for me because KO is such a great heel, And it works for me because Kevin Owens is motivated after being the guy who was supposed to get that spot against Brian at Mania, who ultimately had to move aside to make way for Kofi Mania. Modern WWE is at its best when it can draw from both traditional storylines and wrestling reality TV in terms of real-life motivations coming to the forefront. Accordingly, Money in the Bank is a must-see show already. 
Becky versus Charlotte is not a feud I mind them revisiting, frankly. Their matches are fantastic, and the only feature-length one to date was at Evolution, and it earned Match of the Year honors. Place that alongside KO Kofi and Styles Rollins, plus the Money in the Bank matches, with maybe a Joe versus Mysterio rematch, and already confirmed a Miz versus Shane rematch that doesn't bother me nearly as much as Shane's continued presence in general. Pretty well feels like smart WrestleMania come early this year. And let's give Lacey Evans a chance, shall we? She's doing solid mic work, and we've already got one huge women's title match on the same show. So what's the harm? I love the new Bray Wyatt character. It's total wrestle crap, but it's so unique. I love how Maverick contextualized it in his column last weekend, reminding us as he did the value in Mick Foley's various character tones in the late 1990s. I have no idea how it will translate in the ring, but I love different, man. Give me different personalities who bring different things to the table. Wyatt has always been a horror story-like presence, far more than Taker ever was. Bray has been like WWE equivalent to the horror genre in film. He once was Jason, and now he's it. I get frustrated when WWE doesn't translate the uniqueness of NXT characters to the main roster, so I love it when we see someone on WWE proper that swings for the fences slash throws a Hail Mary. That's going to do it for this week's edition of The Doc Says. Thank you for joining me. And we'll catch you next week. This is just what the doc ordered. I'm saying welcome. They sick of the other shows. Chad here to help them. The author of the mania era is bringing terror on L.O.P. radio. This is the prepare for the knowledge that he about to showcase. Like a bar that you lift, his opinions hold weight. He wrote a few books and he's working on another for y'all. This is a five-star podcast. Chad, let's get it on. Author of the WrestleMania era, the book of sports entertainment.